Last Sunday, we began to engage with lament. What it is, and the fact that it's, it's good, because it's a gift given to us by God. We also briefly, last week, explored four elements of lament. Turning to God, complaining to God about our pain, asking God to act in accordance to his self-proclaimed character and to his promises, and trusting in his character and in his faithfulness through all of it. The application of our study last week was primarily a personal lament as we looked into the life of Job. This week, I want us to consider joining together with one another in lament. This is a corporate application of lament. I think it's worth noting that Job, in defense of his own righteousness, asks in, Job, in chapter 30, verse 25 of, of the book, that he asks the question, it's really more of a statement, didn't I weep for him whose day was hard? Job, speaking as a man of sorrows and as a confirmed man of righteousness specifically identifies lamenting for another grieving person as an act of righteousness. In Romans 12, 15, Paul gives us instructions. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We find that passage in a long list of imperative statements that oftentimes comes in our Bibles under a subheading of Christian living or marks of Christian living. Paul takes us one step further in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 6, and I want to dwell on this one for a little bit before we head into Job. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. What is the Spirit telling us through Paul here? This can seem, at first glance, kind of confusing. That comfort here, comfort there, it's back and forth. It's going all these different directions. Well, first of all, first of all, let's ask what are Christ's sufferings designed to do? Christ's sufferings are central in this passage here. They're an example. They're a foundation. They were designed, to, speak, to say it very simply, they were designed to bring salvation and comfort to people through faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus' sufferings were designed to comfort us, so also, as we abide in Christ, our sufferings are useful for comforting others. How is this so? 
The passage says we receive abundant comfort from God, which comes to us through the gift of Jesus Christ by way of the Father's mercy. Comfort from God through Christ by way of the Father's mercy. Because comfort comes to us this way. We can see that comfort from God, like forgiveness and new life, is received through faith in Jesus Christ. It's unmerited. You see that? It's unmerited. We didn't earn it. It's given freely to us. And therefore, we also ought to give it away freely. Because it's given to us freely, it is inconceivable that we would keep it, that we would take it and bottle up, take all the comfort we have received in our own lives from Christ and stuff it away and hold it unto our own selves and not relinquish it to others who are also suffering. The Lord comforts us so that we can comfort others. This is no accident or afterthought. It's God's purpose to use our afflictions, we see in this passage. It's God's purpose to use our afflictions to make us comforters after the image of Christ as we share in Christ's sufferings. The comfort that we are enabled to give is powerful in redemption, and it is used by the Spirit to intervene in such a way as to help people find and or hold on to faith in Christ in the midst of their affliction. The comfort we receive from God helps us all to press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, as Paul says later in Philippians 3.14. I want to note briefly here also that the source of the affliction in this passage is unspecified. God doesn't necessarily cause the affliction. It's just him using all sources of affliction in our lives for the glorification of God and drawing people to himself and bringing his comfort into their lives in the midst of their sufferings. I've noticed over the last couple of weeks through a, a number of conversations that I've been having with people as I'm talking about lament, it's on my mind and it's coming up in conversations and when it comes up in conversation, one of the, I oftentimes get a, a, a deer in the headlights, blank stare, which has very consistently been followed by, what is lament? What are you even talking about? It's clear to me through that that we, we generally don't know how to join with others in their grief. Perhaps in light of 2 Corinthians 1, as we've just read it, it's because we've given little reflection to the comfort that we ourselves have received from God through Christ Jesus. Maybe it's because we don't realize that the comfort we have received is a gift from God that he wants us to faithfully invest in the lives of other people for the sake of his glory. I think that we typically view suffering and the related expression of grief, which is what lament is, right? It's this expression of grief. I think we, because we relate to it as, as bitter, we talked about that last week, if we think of it, the first way we think of lament, if it's a food, what would it taste like, right? 
would consistently respond with bitterness, with, with the taste of things that we want to expel from our mouths. It's something that's repulsive to us. Because we think of it that way, our thoughts fail to agree with God's thoughts about it. That's not how God sees it. And so we're out of alignment right there with him. And we don't know how to engage with it. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1 that when our suffering is touched by God, it becomes dignified. He sanctifies our suffering, giving dignified purpose, even gain, where worldly understanding can only see senseless loss and reason for despair. God enters suffering, and he changes it, fundamentally changes it, and it becomes something good. He turns it to good. So we should be prepared to mourn with those who mourn. We're called to engage with and in lament. What we've just read gives us reason to do so hopefully, hopefully, rather than fearfully, because the comforter that we see in that passage in 2 Corinthians 1, the comforter is God. The burden's not on your shoulders to be the source of comfort. It's not on my shoulders to be the source of comfort. The comforter is God himself. We are his agents. We are the vessels, the conduits through which his comfort comes to others in their sufferings. His Holy Spirit is the one who does the work through us. And that's a relief. That should help us with our willingness and our hopefulness as we engage in lament with others. Now let's turn to Job again. Or I want to look at Job. Uh, I want to look at Job's friends today. So last week we looked at Job himself and his personal lament. This week let's take a quick blast through Job and uh, and look at uh, the details that God gives us about the theology of Job's friends, how they apply it in their response to Job's suffering. We also get to see Job in this blast through respond to their attempts to comfort him. And that informs where we'll end up landing as well. So let's talk about the three friends. I don't have time this week to uh, talk about Elihu. He's the fourth name that you see uh, in the dialogues that come through. We're going to focus today on, on the three friends who collectively come together. They agree outside of Job to come together and come to him. They all are from distant countries, and they come together and they come to him together to comfort him in unity. So we're going to talk about these three guys because their purpose was to comfort. First, there's Eliphaz, the Temanite. I'm going to preface this real quick by saying that there's, Job is a series of three kind of uh, phases or, or groups of dialogues. It's a long stand, running dialogue, but you'll see uh, Job lament it starts in chapter 3, and then in chapter 4, Eliphaz speaks, and then Job responds, and then another friend, Bildad, speaks, and then Job responds, and then Zophar speaks, and Job responds, 
and then you go back to Eliphaz speaking. And you'll, you'll see that cycle three times uh, through the heart and center of the book. And uh, that's what we're going to dig through. So I'll just take each friend one at a time, and I'm going to bounce through each of their speeches with Job. Now, Eliphaz has speeches in chapters 4 through 5. He speaks again in chapter 15, and then finally in chapter 22. Eliphaz starts out pretty good. He starts out pretty good. He engages with his old friend with encouraging words about the good that Job has done for others. He recognizes Job's history with other people, comforting others, actually. And then in verse 7, he says, Remember who that was innocent ever perish? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Remember, Job's ten children died all at once. That's a critical part of his griefing. The implications of what Eliphaz just said could be restated as Job, your, your, your children must not have been righteous before God. Why else would they have been killed? That's how Eliphaz begins to launch into his theology. Right? It gives us a pretty clear picture of where he sees God and evil juxtaposed against one another. Now, Eliphaz is right through his first speech in chapters 4 and 5 to say that God is just and that God has established a moral order to the universe. He's absolutely right to have said that. However, he's totally wrong in his application of that truth to Job's suffering. The fallacy of the logic that Eliphaz applies to relate the truth about God to his observations of Job's calamity assumes that every person reaps only what he has sown. He assumes that a person can only, that everything, sorry, that a person reaps can only be caused by what he has sown. Now we know Job's backstory, and we know that in his case, that's absolutely false. It's not true of Job. Now Eliphaz goes on in chapter 5 to tell Job that if he turns to God, gladly receiving the discipline of the Almighty, that his wounds will be bound up and healed. Eliphaz even goes so far as to say in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 5 that his tent will be full of peace and his offspring will be many. He's saying this to a man who just lost 10 children. That's incredibly insensitive. He's looking towards remedy, but he's not hearing the pain so much. And he's effectively saying that you need to repent, Job. And so all of this calamity really has got to be part, it's got to be your own fault because you must be in sin before God. Therefore, the calamity is the calamity is the evidence of the sin in your life, though I don't know for sure what it is. It must be there. In chapter 15, in Eliphaz's second speech, he turns on Job. He's heard quite a bit now because there's a lot of dialogue between Job and a number of, and the other two friends. 
but he just flat turns on him, accusing him of effectively undermining religion and holy living as a whole in verse 4 of chapter 15. Eliphaz is now indignant in his tone, and he becomes accusing in his speech. Where he originally honored Job's wisdom at the start of chapter 4, now, the way he speaks, he effectively casts it aside. It's like he's throwing out rotten food or something. It's worthless, repulsive to him. And once again, Eliphaz takes a limited understanding of a just God, and he applies it to Job's circumstances. And now Job's own words as well. He frames Job up chapter 15 as the wicked man who writhes in pain all his days and who has stretched out his hand against God. He paints Job as a blatant wicked sinner standing arbitrarily against God. In his third speech in chapter 22, Eliphaz is downright nasty. In the first four verses, he talks about God in such a way as to elevate God so far above men as to be in disinterested in Job's righteousness at all. Therefore, the conclusion out of that is that Job's persistent claims of righteousness must be part of the sin that he's being punished for. God, so far, it's, why would he be interested in your details? The fact is you, you keep whining, you keep complaining, you keep complaining, you keep complaining. It's offensive to him. And now he's acting on it. Then Eliphaz starts to fabricate accusations against Job. He flat out fabricates things that Job must have done to have deserved the calamity that's befallen him. He makes things up and speaks them publicly. It's brutal. It's nasty. And despite his brutal words, Eliphaz continues to appeal to Job to return to God. Eliphaz seems to have an abiding understanding that God is merciful to those who humble themselves in repentance. Eliphaz expresses deep appreciation for God's holiness and morality, but he rationalizes based on the physical circumstances that he sees in front of him. His fundamental approach is that if we have material blessings, then we're good with God. If, we're, if we don't, then we're not good with God. Eliphaz's rationalization is all based on worldly possession, I mean, what you see and what you have or what you don't have. Eliphaz fails to hear Job because he's so quick to apply his own logic and to deduce natural conclusions from the physical evidence. That's his process. That's how he processes what he's seeing. Now, Job, on his part, actually agrees with much of what Eliphaz says about God. That's, that's not his problem. He agrees that God corrects us and that God punishes evil. But then Job says, but I, I've done nothing to warrant this kind of punishment. Job's wrestling is not about who God is. It's about 
why is this happening? If God is so good, then I'm, I know I'm righteous. Why, why, why is this happening? I can't reconcile this. Furthermore, Job disagrees with Eliphaz in that he believes that the Almighty God is, in fact, interested in the details of our lives. Job clearly expresses a belief that if, if God would, is correcting us, if God comes in and punishes us for our evil, if God blesses us for our good deeds, isn't that evidence that he's interested in the details of our lives? And so we have unresolved differences in theology between Job and Eliphaz. And then Eliphaz leaves Job more hurt than he found him. Next up is Bild Bildad, the Shuhite. Now, Bildad speaks three speeches also in chapters 8 and 18 and in 25. Bildad starts out by tactfully, uh, by basically telling Job to shut his yap because he's pretty much now nothing more than a big windbag. How's that for sensitivity in somebody's suffering? It gets worse, though. In chapter 8, verse 4, Bildad blatantly states that Job's kids died because of their own sin. Mm, that's a wound that cuts. Bildad shows us that he's a by-the-book kind of guy. In verses eight, or chapter 8, verses 8 through 10, that passage in there is, is Bildad referring to the source of his knowledge. He's, he's leaning on the wisdom of the fathers, which could be taken as, as oral or written wisdom that's passed down through the generations. He actually even cites at the end of chapter 8, verses 21 and 22 respectively, he cites Psalms 126, verse 2 and 132, verse 18. Job is applying, in some cases, scriptural wisdom as he responds to Job's complaints and Job's sufferings. The thrust of Bildad's message in his first speech is found in verses 5 through 7 of chapter 8. Bildad effectively says, Seek God, plead for mercy, and if you're good, he'll respond and restore your fortunes. In other words, Job, stop all this complaining. Stop it. God is good. He accepts good men and rejects evil men, period. It's that simple. So, Buck up, Job. Do what's required to be good before God and move on. That's the basic message that Bildad gives Job. Bildad's second speech applies what he knows of the nature of God to the fate of the wicked, which by implication, he includes Job. He really does, doesn't address Job directly so much from this point forward. The implication is that he thinks Job is about to share in the fate of the wicked, so he better stop complaining about bogus, unjust suffering and listen to their wisdom, listen to the wisdom of these friends who've come to him and repent or else. Now, while Bildad is orthodox in his beliefs, he's incredibly unfeeling in his application. 
As it is, his approach keeps God distant from Job, distant, and from us, if we trust what he says. Job says that he shares in the same orthodoxy, but his problem is that what he believes doesn't match up with his experience, similar to what he'd said to Eliphaz. Bildad keeps on talking about who God is, but Job's questions aren't as much about who God is at this point as he responds to Bildad, but about where God is in his suffering. Bildad, much like Eliphaz, fails to listen to Job. He never addresses Job's suffering. He never really engages with it. Now, the last of the three friends is Zophar, the Namathite. He speaks twice in chapters 11 and in chapters 20. Each of the friends progressively speak less with each speech as they try to apply their wisdom to Job's troubles. And Job continually responds and continually holds to his faith in God and in his own righteousness. They begin to run out of words. They begin to run out of things to say. And what they say as they run out really kind of gets harder and harder to stomach. Zophar, in chapter 11, rebukes Job. He just comes right out of the chute swinging, man. He comes in and rebukes Job in verses 4 through 6 for continuing to protest his innocence and the injustice of his suffering. Bildad just, or Zophar, just cannot see. He cannot reconcile in his own mind that Job, your suffering has, has to be, it can only be evidence of your iniquity. Quit complaining. You're getting your just due. That's what Zophar is telling Job. The argument that Zophar makes is based on the omniscience and the unsearchable wisdom of God. And, and you kind of see a little blip there in 1112, and it's based on his own seemingly infallible common sense. That little remark about how can a man come out, you know, a righteous man come out of a wild donkey, that's Zophar's own common sense creeping in there. Zophar also calls on Job to repent. All three of the friends do that. So Zophar also calls on Job to repent. But unlike the other two friends, he goes so far as to actually lay out a prescription for repentance to Job in chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. And then he details the blessings that will surely follow. Zophar is correct to say that a life of faith is based on repentance and obedience. He's also correct in what he says about God, that God blesses his people with security and hope and with peace. But he's completely wrong to presume that the answer for Job's problems is repentance. He's missed the point. He started with a wrong assumption. And so his, the application of his theology never ever can hit the mark because it never started from the right place. Zophar's second speech simply details 
the utter desolation and destruction of wicked men. It isn't helpful to Job whatsoever. It's only condemning to him. Zophar, in all of his speaking, is brutally condescending, cold-hearted, and he's entirely void of empathy. I don't like Zophar. It's no wonder he also doesn't listen to Job at all, really. You can't see any responsiveness to Job personally in his speaking. Now, how does their counsel affect Job? Job ends up making multiple remarks about the uselessness of his friends. That's a pretty important point for friends who've come to help him with the intent to bring him comfort. And I believe he's anticipating, hoping for comfort from them. And it sure doesn't come. He gets quite the opposite. And so he begins to remark about their uselessness and about the inappropriateness of their remarks. He says they're all miserable comforters, his words. They're all miserable comforters. And that they're about as helpful as a dry stream bed is to a thirsty caravan in the desert. David Atkinson remarks in his commentary on Job that Job never complains that they're not telling the truth. Nowhere in there. Nowhere in all that Job says do you see him complain that they're not telling the truth. It's just that they simply did not engage with him where he is. Instead of comforting Job, the words of his friends stab at him. They stab at him. And they nearly drive him to despair. You can see if you watch just, if you were to put like a heart monitor on Job's responses as he goes through the whole book, he's, he starts to climb towards God and then they respond to something he said and it just drags him down and he has to dig himself back, back up. He's up and he's down and it's always their words that he's responding to that drag him back down towards despair. They comfort with their initial presence, then they harm with their attempts to bring his suffering to an end. They think their wisdom will provide a remedy, never conceiving that in reality it was in God's wisdom to afflict. They just can't conceive of that at all. Nor do they really seem to understand that it, in God's wisdom, he'll bring comfort. Job's friends know a lot of true things about God, but they use what they know of God to hedge God into a nice little predictable set of equations, rule sets. If you do good, God will bless you. If you do evil, God will rebuke you to correct you into repentance, which will restore you and his blessings to you. If you are unrepentant, God will punish you. That's about the breadth of the advice and the comfort that they give to Job. That's God's world order in a nutshell, according to the friends of Job. What they don't seem to know or understand is that God cannot be hedged in. He's free. God is free like a wild roaming animal free. He is free, untamable. God's not small. 
God's not wooden. God's not portable. We can't stick him in a pocket and pull him out whenever we want to and have him respond like we expect him to respond all the time. He does not fit into our history. Instead, we fit into his eternal history. Their theology is of a God who is too rigid to engage or too distant to care about the intimate ongoings of our day-to-day lives. This theology is irreconcilable with Job's experience and, quite frankly, with the entire human experience, isn't it? Job's theology, which relates individual men to God in intimate detail, Job cries out to God, believing that God will hear his cries and respond. These guys rebuke him for having done so. They're at completely opposite ends of a theological understanding of who God is and who we are in context with God. Now, when God finally speaks for himself, he reveals his presence amongst and his mindfulness of mankind and in his speech, all the rest of creation too. God is intimately involved with us and with the creation around us. God expresses in his own speeches, God expresses the expansiveness of his wisdom and the incomparably limited wisdom of man. We can't even begin to get close to God's wisdom. And God makes that very clear. God expresses his power, his precision, and his mysteriousness. He is all at once loving, faithful, attentive, wise, and dangerously uncontrollable. This is not the God of Job's friends. That's not who they know him to be. But that's the God they discover him to be. God's speech humbles them all. He humbles every one of them, including Job. And he rebukes the three friends for having spoken wrongly about him. He rebukes him. Now, what does all of this have to do with us? I want to suggest that Job's friends stand as both an encouragement and as a warning to us. First of all, the encouragement. It's a short list. It's good. It's good that Job's friends came to him. That's a good thing. God never rebukes him for that. Job, in his responses to him, seems to have expected that it would have brought more comfort to him. What they did when they came to him was good. They're present with him in his suffering. They physically enter right into it with him and visibly express the same lament along with him. That's good. The willing presence of loved ones in our suffering as opposed to avoidance by our friends and by our family because of our suffering. That is most often very, very comforting to us. Now, 
That's about the end of what I have to say as encouragement from Job's friends. Told you it was a short list. Now as cautions, we ought not stand on our own wisdom or logic like these three friends do. Because wisdom is from God, we will do well for ourselves and for others to be in prayer for those who are in suffering. We ought to be asking God to reveal who we are to engage with. Our first entry into lament of other people ought to be in our personal prayers for them and towards them. And because we find God's wisdom revealed to us in his word, we will do well to be in the word. Now I'm talking, quite frankly, about regular daily Bible time, listening to God as he speaks to us. As you read scripture, ask the Holy Spirit to give you insights into, to, that, that you can incorporate into your prayers for other people. Let's not just read selfishly. Let's read graciously for the sake of those around us and trust that the Lord will give us something good, not just for us, but for others as well. It may also be useful uh, to read some other helpful books about lament because we struggle so much to understand this subject. We know so little about it. There are some trustworthy authors who've written some very good and very helpful books toward that end. C.S. Lewis has written A Grief Observed. That's a good, kind of a classic one. I've been reading Michael Card's Sacred Sorrow and Mark Vrogrup's Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy lately as well and have found them very helpful resources. We should also resist the instinct to quickly find the bright side of someone's suffering. The reality, most often when we're doing that, is that we're uncomfortable with their suffering and we're, so we're trying to end the discomfort as quickly as possible. We very often try to seek the bright side out of our own selfishness, our own discomfort. No, let's not do that. It interferes with our ability to listen to them. Don't end an awkward silence when we're with somebody, when we hear of their suffering. Don't end that. It's, there oftentimes is this awkward silence, right? We don't know how to engage. We're not quite sure what to say. And we'll end that silence and effectively end the conversation. This is kind of a good Christianese signing off. But I'll be praying for you. Brothers and sisters, let's pray now. Let's engage with them now. Let's not just end the conversation and walk away. We will leave hurt people in their hurt. And we may oftentimes add to their hurt when we leave them that way. The reason that it hurts them if we leave them that way is because we've effectively given them a clear expression of our discomfort with their pain. And we kind of tell them, I just really don't want to engage there. There's a lot of nonverbal communication that happens. That's important for us to understand. If we don't want to make hurt people feel exiled or shunned or alone in their grief, many times they oftentimes already do. Remember that lament is prayer. 
Lament is prayer, and in reality is worship. It is an intimate worship because we draw near to God and we give him glory through it. And because lament is prayer and worship, it's designed to help people glorify God through their faith in him. We can model lament. We've already acknowledged it. We, we oftentimes don't really understand it. What I'm trying to do is help us understand it. God has given us through scripture a language of lament. He's given us words to speak that are a language that relates with people in their suffering. And we can model a healthy and godly biblical lament for people who are suffering and may not even understand how to lament for their own selves by praying prayers of lament for them and if they're willing to allow us to with them, we can begin to help build the framework through which they can draw near to Christ because God has given it to us and it's not for us, it's for them as well. So instead of telling someone you will be praying, ask them if they'll allow you to pray with them right then in that moment. Make the time. Make the time. You won't get another chance like that chance. Next, meet people where they are. Job's friends didn't meet him where he is. You see that very clearly through the whole book. They never meet him where he is in his suffering. Meet them wherever they are, in whatever the stage of grieving or lamenting they're in, meet them right there. Don't try to meet them somewhere towards the end of it. That's where we want it to be, right? We don't want to stay in the suffering. Don't try to meet them out here because they're not there yet. And it may actually be very hurtful to try and just leap there. And quite frankly, we may be interfering with the work that God is doing in their hearts, a new understanding of his character, his presence, his nearness to them. If we do that, don't truncate grieving. It's not right. Also, meet them at their stage of spiritual maturity. Everyone, everyone experiences suffering. Everybody. From the saints who have known the Lord and do know the Lord and are firm in their faith in Christ Jesus all the way to folks who've never heard his name, entering into suffering with people is also entering into their walk of life, their walk of faith with Christ. Meet them where they're at there. Don't try to engage them someplace where they're not in their maturity spiritually. Be conscious. That takes listening, right? What we're talking about is listen to them. Listen to them, hear where they're at, and engage them there. Be humble also about your own assessment of your own spiritual maturity. Job's buddies sure thought they had it, didn't they? And in the end, they were deeply humbled and rebuked by God himself. That's a caution to us. That's a caution to us. Let's be honest about our own assessment. Okay? God is big, and it may be that as we engage in somebody else's lament, we also, we also have a lesson to learn from God. And there may be comfort that comes to us even as we comfort someone else that we never even realized we needed. God works mysterious things all the time, and he does so much more than we can ever imagine. Finally, 
unsolicited explanations, misapplied theology, hollow platitudes. There's no comfort in those ever. Let's try to resist the instinct to say things like that to people. In our desire to fix the problem of grief, we can very quickly misrepresent the very character of God by saying flippant things about him or about what somebody's suffering must be about to accomplish. Right? Be very careful with our words because we are ambassadors for Christ. We are his representatives in this world. And so what we say matters. We bear his name. Let us not bear it in vain. Jesus Christ is the perfecter of our faith. He is the man of sorrows. He knows our sorrow and our grief. He's the example that we have. We are encouraged. We are compelled to follow in his footsteps, to walk, in, as John tells us in 1 John 2, to walk as Christ walked. Now, Jesus set aside all of his glory, all of his glory, and he entered into the pain and the suffering and the darkness of our world, of our grief, willingly, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross on our behalf. He entered into our lives and brought us freedom. Freedom that comes only from the one true free and living God himself. He is the example we have. He is the hope that we have in and through suffering. Let us not formulate a plan based on what we think we know of God and give somebody a plan through suffering and put it in their hands. Let us instead throw that away and take people by the hand and lead them to Christ and put their hand in his as they suffer so that he will lead them through their suffering, so that he will comfort them in their time of mourning and in their time of grief, so that he will be the presence that they're seeking so much and that he will become the wisdom that brings truth and light into a darkness that otherwise is unbearable. It's to Christ that we take people as they suffer. It's to Christ that we go as we suffer with them. That's the only good place for us to go. And Christ is glorified in that. God is glorified as we exonerate his son, as we lift him high, and we bring our sufferings, our pains, the filthy rags of our lives, we bring them to him, and he redeems them. He redeems us. He gives us hope. And there, there we find life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise your holy name and we lift your name on high because you in your infinite wisdom have chosen to allow affliction to still exist in this world. 
We don't get it. We don't understand it. But Father, through my own experience with you, I've watched you reach in, and when you've touched it, you have redeemed people. You have redeemed circumstances. The pain oftentimes is still there, Father, but you love us so much that somehow when we receive your love, we can endure the pain for your namesake, for the sake of being near to you. Father, thank you for engaging with us. Thank you for being a God who's not distant and far away and harsh and judgmental towards us alone, but loving and merciful and gracious and present with us in our suffering. Lord Jesus, we need you. We need you. We depend on you, and we trust in your faithfulness, even as we struggle with our own faithfulness. You are yet faithful to be with us, to love us, to carry us through suffering. Lord, would you help us? Would you help us as a body? Would you work your spirit in our lives so that we will truly engage with that amazing 11th commandment that you've given us, to love as you have loved, to love one another as you have loved, Lord, so that you will be glorified in this world. Help us to do that as we engage in the suffering of our brothers and sisters and as we engage in the suffering of those who don't yet know you, who don't yet know that you have redemption in hand for them. May your name be glorified on high. May your name be glorified on high as we become ministers of reconciliation in the midst of suffering. Give us courage to stand in the darkness, knowing that we are light because of your presence in us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.